It is good to be with you all. Well, by way of review, what we have been talking about is absolutely crucial, and it is worth not only covering it for two weeks, but meditating on it for the rest of our lives. And that is the punchline, the bottom line, the entire point of Daniel chapter 8. What we have been discussing and what we have been seeing is the application the perspective, the expectation that one is to have in light of Daniel 1 through 7. Daniel 1 through 7 was God's proclamation to the nations of his enduring and ongoing sovereignty, of his sovereignty that will culminate in his son. And he has a sovereign plan and he has a sovereign agenda and it will ultimately culminate when heaven invades earth and declares in answer to the question, who is the only one who is worthy? Who is the only one who is sovereign? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. All history bends and is directed in that very trajectory. And now the question of Daniel 8 is in detail, how do you live as God's people in light of that? What kind of perspective, what kind of expectations should we have? And so God gives Daniel some additional visions to help him understand how this will affect his life. And so far, what we have seen is that things will go from bad to worse. That's been the message that things will get worse. You must understand that. That does not mean that God is out of control or things are out of his control. Rather, when you see that happen, you need to know that that's indicative that he is in control because that's exactly what he said would happen. Things, if you thought Babylon was bad, there's Medo-Persian. If you think Medo-Persia is bad, then you get Greece with Alexander the Great. And then if you thought he was bad, then there's going to be four generals that follow him who are worse. And if you thought that guy was bad, then you're going to meet another group of, or another individual, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's really, really bad, even prototypical of the Antichrist. And so things will go from bad to worse. However, there is a punchline in it all. And it's not just that the Bible wants you to be a complete pessimist realist. It is this, that even as bad as things will be, and they will be, even as terrible as the world will progress, and it will, God will preserve his own. God will hold us fast. God will never, he will never allow the circumstances around us to overcome us or separate us from him. Those things will never take away our salvation. Those things will never cut our relationship off from him. No matter how bad they are, they cannot overcome God. They cannot overcome his plan, and they cannot overcome our eternal destiny. That's what Daniel 8 concludes with. That's the punchline, and that's important and vital for us to talk about and meditate on, not only for two weeks, like I said, but also for the rest of our lives. He will hold us fast. And in order to establish that lesson, even pastorally, God guides Daniel in interpreting this vision through some fundamental principles that are absolutely required so that you can have the right perspective when we face trial. One was, as we said before, the reliability of Scripture. The reliability of Scripture. That Scripture is mighty. That God... When Daniel had questions about the nature of the dream, he sends an angel, one who has the appearance of a man. And if you remember us talking about it, the word man there is the word gever or gabri, like the name Gabriel. 
The guy is named after his stature. The guy is named after his strength. And God's message to Daniel is this. I have assigned mighty men of heaven. I have assigned individual attention of heaven to ensure that my word will come to pass. When you are tempted to think, I don't know if God's promises are true. I don't know if what the Bible says is really what is going on around me. We need to remind ourselves God's word is infallible. It cannot fail. It will be what wins in the end. It cannot succumb. It cannot be trumped. It cannot not come to fruition. Pardon the double negative. It will always come to pass. Nothing stands in its way. And if anything on earth does, heaven and earth will rise to overcome it because that is the sovereignty of God that backs his word. We need to remember when all of our senses are saying one thing and all of our feelings are saying one thing, that scripture is more sure. It is what defines things and makes reality. God has assigned his angel to do it. And in fact, we know that that's the case because as Christmas is coming, Who is the angel sent here and there and everywhere to push forward the agenda of the incarnation, the first advent? It is none other than Gabriel. Why? Because whenever the prophecy of Daniel is advancing, Gabriel is there. God has assigned his one. Heaven is not dormant. The Yahweh of hosts of the heavenly armies has committed all heaven and all of his omnipotence to the cause. It will go through. And for this very reason, God emphasizes to Daniel, as we saw, that this is a vision. This is a vision. Not just revelation, although it is. Not just information, though it is. Not just truth, though it is. It is a vision. Because even inherent in the term vision is the word vision. It's what you see. And God is reminding Daniel, I see more than what you see. Uh, Let me tell you what you cannot see. Let me tell you what is out there, what is working, what is present, that is not visible to you. You can't sense it. You can't feel it. Your physical faculties cannot detect it. But nevertheless, it's there. What we must remember about the reliability of Scripture is that even though you may feel something, you may sense something, everything looks a certain way to you, God's point to us and what we must remind ourselves is this, God sees more. What you want to know and what you want to understand is not just what you feel about the situation, but the way it is, the way God sees it. And so in introducing the interpretation of this vision, God reminds Daniel, Daniel, you're going to be tempted. You're going to struggle. Your people that you're writing to and talking with are certainly going to struggle in the moments of trial To just say, well, whatever I feel, whatever I think, whatever I see, whatever I taste, whatever I touch, that's real. And God says, no, no, no. We have a more sure word that sees more than we ever have seen. And that will win out. That will win out. We must tell ourselves of these things. And likewise, another presupposition in bolstering and grounding this message is the reality of history. The reality of history as the vision begins to be 
explicated, as it's unpacked, and we understand not just its content fundamentally, but the exact way and the exact consequences it will have on world history, the angel Gabriel lays out in systematic detail, very explicit, unquestionably and undeniably clear, this is exactly what's going to happen. Do you want to know? what the ram with two horns stands for, Medo-Persia. He just says it explicitly. And do you want to know what the horn is? The horn is representative of Greece. He just says it explicitly. And if you remember, he even says, that is Gabriel, even says that the horn, in our translations, it's translated large, but the Hebrew word is, it's a great horn, playing off the word Alexander the Great. I mean, you can't get clearer than that. The guy is explicit. This is exactly what's going to happen. And then after you have that first king, he's going to break up, which is true, and there will be four that follow him. Those are his four generals that divided up the land, exactly the way history flows. And on the one hand, we might say, well, yes, we could have figured out that history from everything that the Bible had already indicated in Daniel 8. Why is the author, why is Daniel, why is Gabriel giving an explicit interpretation of the dream? Step by step by step by step by step, it almost seems redundant since we could have derived this earlier. And on the other hand, while asking that question, what we must understand is the answer. Because what God is reminding Daniel, and Daniel in turn is reminding us, is that these promises, this theology is not a metaphor. It is not just, oh, well, God, we know he has the capability of doing this. He's up in heaven doing his own thing, but he could do this. It's really nice to think of him this way. It's really lovely that he just has this attributes and character out there somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. No, what the point is, is that our God is not just abstract or theory. This is not just a metaphor. This is not just a nice figurative thought. This is what he does. This is what he did relative to us. This is what he will do relative to the Antichrist, as this is prototyping all of that, foreshadowing all that. And if it's what he did and what he will do, then we know this is what he's doing. Not out there somewhere, not just hypothetically speaking, not just theoretical. We are talking about world history, real time, real space, real people, real places, real things. And that has to be our conviction. Whenever we're tempted to think, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if our God is going to really do what he says here, hold us fast and all this kind of stuff. I don't really know if he's going to do that for me. Did he do it for the Jews in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes? Yes, that's a fact. Did he do it, as we will see, for Daniel? Yes, that's a fact. He did it. It wasn't just a nice metaphor, figurative language, transitional kind of thinking. No, it's real. Then therefore, he will do it for you. He will do it for you. Not just abstractly and idealistically, he will do it in your circumstances, in your heart, in your life. He will hold you fast. To be clear, it doesn't mean everything will go right. Everything will be well. Everything will be nice and prosperity and all that kind of stuff. We've already said this is all in the context of things going from bad 
to worse. We're not talking about that your circumstances are going to be everything an American wants them to be. We are talking about our God doing everything he wills for our good. That's what we are talking about. And nothing will trump that. That is what is entrenched by God through Daniel to us to prepare us for the punchline message that God preserves. He does hold his own. He holds us fast. He will not let anyone snatch us out of his hand. Nothing will come and overcome us. Nothing will come and separate us. Nothing will come and destroy us ultimately. One way or another, we will make it home because our God will hold us fast. And this is a powerful reality and promise. And it is an irrevocable promise, and you see it, the glory of this from Old Testament to New Testament. And it is worthwhile for us to have absolute confidence in this glorious truth and to understand that what you have in Daniel is a specific illustration and implementation of this grander notion that God holds fast his own. This is not just something in the New Testament. This is not just something come lately in the Old Testament. This notion that God will hold his own fast is found from the very beginning. It is found from the very beginning. It is irrevocable. It is that God will do whatever it takes to keep his promise. That's the notion. And you see it all the way back in Genesis. You see it all the way back in Genesis. When Abraham was going to sacrifice and was commanded to sacrifice Isaac and put everything on the line, and God had promised that only through Isaac would the world be blessed and all the promises come to pass. Well, if you kill the guy, then it seems like the game is over. But amazingly, this is what Abraham says, and later on the book of Hebrews expounds the ramifications of it. He says to the young men, the boy and I, we will go up to the mountain. We will go up to the mountain. And then it says later, and the boy and I, we will return to you. What did Abraham know? God will keep his promise no matter what. And even if it means I go up to the mountain, I chop up my son into bits, I offer him as a sacrifice, God, as Hebrews reminds us, Abraham believed God would raise him from the dead so that they would return back to those young men together. Why? Because our God cannot fail in his promises. They are irrevocable. They are irrefutable. They cannot fail. They are infallible. And that is what undergirds the absolute preservation of his people through life and death and whatever it may be, because he cannot go back on his word. Likewise, Deuteronomy chapter 30, when Israel was wondering, how can we have the right heart God has commanded us to love him with all our heart. He has commanded us to circumcise our heart. And then in Deuteronomy 29, Moses drops the reality and he says, and God has not given you the right heart to do any of those things. Well, excuse me, Moses. You just said, love God with all your heart. Mm -hmm. You said we need to have a circumcised heart to do that. Mm -hmm. And you've just said everything is predicated upon that one heart. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that heart. Mm -hmm. So how are we supposed to do it? Mm Mm-hmm. And then in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, we have the famous phrase, the secret things belong to the Lord. You thought that was just a joke when we said that was about Calvinism. It's actually true. All the Israelites were wondering the same thing. Now, unlike us, 
Sometimes we just like to keep things a secret. Well, the blessing is that after Deuteronomy 29 is this other chapter called Deuteronomy 30, and God actually tells you the secret. And he says this, I will circumcise your heart. I will do what you never did. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the entire point is this, when I do that, then you can have all the promises. Then you can have all the fulfillment. Then you can have everything that I guaranteed to you. How do we know God will hold us fast? Because when he gives us those promises, it wasn't an option. It was an outcome. It was an outcome. That was what its point was. It wasn't just, oh, well, you can take our leave. These things that I'm doing in your life, they're just optional for you. They're just They're just possibilities for you. No, the entire reason God is giving those promises is to say this to Israel. I will finish the job for you and I will get you to the end. This is about fulfillment. This is about outcome. Therefore, that's the foundation for preservation. And that's why in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, there is never a thought that when God changes one's heart, gives one a new birth, fulfills all his promises, that somehow Israel could just jump ship and lose what God had given to them. That's never a thought because there's only been one intent and one purpose to all of those kinds of new covenant promises anticipated and proclaimed. And it is this, God will finish the job. God will finish the job. So this whole notion of, oh, you can get your salvation and lose it, that has never been in the context of any of these things because it will run counter to the entire point of why God would give this. And that's why in the New Testament, John 10, no one will snatch you from the Father's hand. That's why Romans 8, we know this, we just heard it this morning, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That all things work together for good because of what God does for those who love him and whom he caused to love himself. We remember that he who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. Philippians 1.6. We remember that God will present us blameless before him through his son, book of Jude. We remember, 1 John 5, 4 through 5, that the one who is born again is the one who loves God and who keeps his commands and overcomes the world. Why? Because that's what God does when he does a work in somebody's heart. The way he has set it up from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that his job is to finish the job. This is the whole point is fulfillment. That's why in 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5, it says that there is a treasure lying in heaven for you, preserved even as God preserves you. You are being kept for that. It is why Hebrews 7, part of the new covenant package, is that we have the Son interceding in heaven on our behalf all the time. Why? Because there's only one singular trajectory of salvation. You can't get off the train. You are on it. You are locked in. That's the entire point of why the covenant and why the agreement and why salvation within that exists. There is no other purpose. There is no other intent. That is why it originated. That is why it exists. And that is what it does. Now, some of you here, though, you might say, well, yeah, I love that. But what about... A passage like Hebrews 6. Oh, it gives me a lot of trouble, this Hebrews 6 passage. And it seems like, oh, doesn't that seem like you can lose your salvation? First and foremost, you have to ask yourself the question. In this book of Hebrews, 
where the author is talking about the interceding work of Christ, where it's talking about he holds you fast even as you hold on to him, where it's talking about how Jesus is able to save to the uttermost for forever those whom he is sanctifying. You wonder if, if all of a sudden in Hebrews 6 he can say you can lose your salvation. Did the guy get amnesia? Did he just become forgetful and just forget what he said from Hebrews 1 through 5 and forget what he said from Hebrews 7 through 9 and 11 through 13? Did he just forget about it and just say, well, you know what? What was I talking about? Oh, I guess you can lose your salvation, even though I just denied that for four chapters. No, he didn't get amnesia. In Hebrews 6, when it talks about those who had tasted, those who have been enlightened, that language is very similar to Israel in the wilderness. Did they not see the light of God in his glory? Did they not taste the manna? Did any of them, were any of them saved? Not really. They all died in the wilderness. Yes? Well, one, because that's a fact. Two, because the author of Hebrews just talked about that for four chapters. He just said they died. And here's what's interesting. Why did they die? And at the end of Hebrews 4 and 3, it says this, because they did not believe. They did not believe. You can look something, you can taste something, you can see something. That doesn't mean you are something. We have to be careful. And in fact, even more, in Hebrews 6, it says this, they were once this way, once this way. And in fact, there's a consistent use of the past tense in Hebrews, which stands in contrast with what believers have. Here's how, here's how the author of Hebrews describes believers. We are those who are being sanctified. Did you notice how that's worded? Not just that we are sanctified, we are being sanctified. We are actively in the process, even as we passively receive the Lord's sanctifying work. But we are being worked on right now, over and over and over again. Hebrews 6, all it says is, they once tasted, they once were enlightened, they once knew, they once had this, they once had that. Have you ever met a a so-called believer? And somebody who kind of, you raise your eyebrows at, they say, You say, man, you are living like a pagan. You are living wicked. They said, but I'm a Christian. You say, why? Because I prayed a prayer. When? Once a long time ago. None of us here, given our training and our understanding of Scripture, would say, well, if you did that, I guess you are. They said, because I signed a card. And therefore, I must be a Christian. You signed a card. When I was four. I didn't know any other letters. I just put a big X. So what does that mean? I must be a Christian. See, that's not how it works. Where is the work of God in your life? Where is the fruit that comes when God is working in you? Not just when you're manufacturing it even, when God is working in you. It's not there. These Hebrew 6 people, so to speak, the referent of Hebrew 6 are people who said, I once did that. I once did that. I look like Israel. I had great experiences. But none of them have that. You know, it's fascinating, just by way of saying this, that one of the terms enlightened is later on used in Hebrews chapter 10. It says that you were enlightened. And you can imagine all the author, audience of Hebrews just starting to cringe because he just berated four chapters ago people who once were enlightened and they were actually fake and they were just cringing because they said, if we're just like them, then we're dead. And here's what the author says, and you know this because what's the chapter after Hebrews 10? 10 plus 1 is 11. And in Hebrews 11, it's the hall of fame of what? Faith. 
And the author of Hebrews says, what was Israel's problem in the wilderness? They did not what? Believe. Here's what you have, faith preserving to the soul. That's what you have. That makes all the difference in the world. You may initially look like them. They could try to look like you, but one has faith and the other doesn't, and that makes an eternal difference. There's nothing to fear about Hebrews 6. It's not saying you can lose your salvation at all. It's talking about people that we are very, very familiar with, people who rely on a past experience, people who are talking about things in the past, things one-time experience, very external, nothing internal, and they're saying that they're saved. And the author of Hebrews is warning, don't play that game. Don't play that game. Because if you turn away from Christ, what you have attested to is that you full know well what you have turned away from. And if God loves his son so much, what do you think he's going to do to you when you with full knowledge reject him? That's the warning. And speaking of which, that's how we have to understand Hebrews 6. It's a warning. Think about the language of warning. Warning is not a prophecy. Warning is not a prophecy. Warnings are true, but warnings are not prophecy. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, just think about road signs. It says, beware, cliff ahead. No one driving just says, well, then I died. (laughs) They warned me, and it happened. Like, no, that's how you die. When you act like that and just let go of the wheel and say, it's already over, I'm dead. You have made a self-fulfilling prophecy. A warning just tells you, about the reality of a danger. It doesn't say that you are that person inherently. It doesn't say that you have actually done that danger. When you warn a child, don't put your hand on the stove, the child's hand is still there. Like, it still exists. It hasn't been burned off yet. It's not a prophecy. It's a warning. What Hebrews 6 is warning, it shoots out this warning And for those who are directly referred to by Hebrews 6, it's about them, and they should know better. And what happens when you warn somebody? Don't say, no one ever what? Told you. No one ever warned you. You have no excuse when it happens. On one hand, that's happened with Hebrews 6. But when you warn somebody, cliff ahead. When you warn somebody, don't touch the stove. And they actually have a relatively soft heart and they heed the warning, then you never get close to the danger, do you? You never get close to the danger. And what is the author of Hebrews saying? I give you a warning so that this will never happen in your life. And in fact, if you really stop and think about it and you understand something like a tiger mom or an athletic coach, if you're an American, Sometimes we warn people and exhort them, not because we believe they're going to fail, but because we believe they can succeed. Why do tiger moms, and by the way, for the record, my mom wasn't a tiger mom, so I'm safe in saying all this, but (laughs) why do tiger moms push their kids so hard? It's not because they're cruel and unusual, even though maybe some of those kids might think that. It's because they believe in them. They warn them. Why does a coach push his kids hard? And why do we as parents want our kids to be under those kind of coaches? Because we, want, we believe that our child or that child has so much potential that they can achieve. 
Warning and pushing doesn't mean you're pessimistic about a person. Warning and pushing could actually mean the opposite, that you believe these people should never get close to the danger, and you tell them that. That's Hebrews 6. That's why the author of Hebrews, after warning them, says, and we are confident of so many better things for you, beloved, things pertaining to salvation. Because now I warn so that you'll never get close to the danger, and you'll always be close to Christ. And if you do get close to the danger, don't say I didn't what? Warn you. That's the nature of Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 actually doesn't undermine the doctrine of perseverance. Hebrews 6 depends on the doctrine of perseverance because you only warn people that you are confident God will hold fast to the end. That's what you do. That's what you do. So we have this glorious doctrine of perseverance. It is magnificent. It is wonderful. And what you have in Daniel 8, back to Daniel, is you have an illustration, an implementation of this doctrine. And you not only have an illustration of it, an implementation of it, an example of it, you have one that is embedded, as we have been talking about, in reality, in history. A very tangible, physical, visceral in that way, example of what is going on and how God will sustain his people through and what very, very, very visible ends and means to an end that he will take in order to secure his people's salvation, in order that nothing will ever separate them from their God. And having talked about how we need to remember this in light of the reality of history and the reliability of Scripture, the author, Daniel, now tells us, here's what you need to remember, the restraint. That's what you need to remember, the restraint. God will preserve. God will hold us fast. Why? Because he will restrain evil. He will never put you in a situation you can't handle. He will restrain. And so in verses 23 through 26, third of really four points that we've been covering, we now have the restraint of Antiochus the restraint of Antiochus. Chapter 8, verse 23. Let's turn there now. The opening words are in the latter day of their kingdom, in the latter time of their kingdom. This is speaking of the historical progression. We are directly in history of You have the Medo-Persians, then you're going to have after them the Greeks headed by Alexander the Great. After them, you're going to have four generals that rise up after that. And within their kingdom, the latter part of their kingdom, those four generals, there will be another king that arises. And that time will be characterized, as the text says, by the time that transgression has increased. Remember, this whole thing and the reason in part, in part, that this happens is because of Israel's sin. Israel has engaged in the worst kind of transgression, of trespass, of going off the path that God had ordained. At this time, there's going to be an intense amount of sin. 
Jews were apostatizing. They were committing themselves to total Hellenization, matching exactly the pagan world in the worst and immoral and very visible kind of activity that just demonstrated you have renounced God and you have renounced the ways of God. That's what the Jewish people, to a large degree, were doing at this time. And so this will be a time of intensified sin and this will be a time of intensified wrath. And when God raises all this to a all of his ends it's completely still yet justified because he's doing it to chastise his people for their wickedness and at that moment it says this a king will stand a king will stand now that word stand is important because we've had a lot of people make their stand throughout daniel 8 the ram stood the goat stood the four generals stood everyone stands this word stand is repeated throughout chapter 8 a lot Well, this king makes his stand, which means he's the culmination, the climax, the zenith point of all previous people making their stands. He is the worst of them all or the greatest of them all at being bad. Either way, he's the climax of evil. And what you will have now in this, and I know it sounds like a lot, but we'll go through this really quickly. You have actually seven ways this guy is worse than everybody else. Seven ways that this guy is worse than than everybody else. And let me just give it to you. One, he's crazy. That's the first one. He's crazy. They all start with C, so that's why I had to start with the word crazy. In verse 23, it says this, that he had, he was insolent. Maybe that's some translations. Literally in Hebrew, it says strong of face. Strong of face. And you say, how do you get crazy from that? What it means to be strong of face is that this person has tunnel vision. He can only see one thing, and he wants it, and he will do anything he can to get it. He is so determined. He is merciless. He is relentless, and if he doesn't get his way, he will be like a little kid and throw a temper tantrum, except unlike a little kid whom you can control in their temper tantrums, this guy's temper tantrums cause Mideast panic. That's what this guy does. This guy is crazy. This guy is crazy. And history attested that Antiochus Epiphanes, the individual here, the one who is the king in the latter days, he had that propensity. If he did not get his way, he would start torturing people, killing people, causing conflict until he got what he wanted. In fact, that is precisely why they nicknamed Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest, to Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus Moonstruck. Because the guy's name, I mean, they just changed his name from Antiochus, the appearance of God, to Antiochus, the appearance of crazy. That's what his nickname was. The guy was crazy. There are some people who will be restrained because they see rational sense and they stop. Antiochus never had that filter. He never had that break. He never had rationality to say, well, maybe this is a good point to get out while I'm still ahead. It's all or nothing. He didn't care. He's crazy. So that's the first thing. He's crazy. Here's the second way. He's clever. He's clever. Here's what it says, that he was a master of riddles. That's kind of what the Hebrew says. He, he knew, he, he was very clever. And the idea of 
understanding riddles or skilled in strategy. It actually are skilled in intrigue. The idea is that he could know how to figure out puzzles. Whenever you had a problem, he knew how to find a solution, which also meant that he was not only a problem solver, but also that he knew how to set up problems that people couldn't figure out. Because if you can solve problems, you can make problems. You can make problems better than people can solve. And he was very clever. He was very clever. In fact, there is a time when some Israelite citizens came to him, and he already had this in his own heart. He already had this in his chessboard of political moves to radically Hellenize all of Israel, because if he can't beat them, what? Join them. So he was going to convert all of Israel to the Greco kind of way of life. And there were this group of Israelite citizens. I kind of joke with my students. It's the Israelite citizens concerned from Hellenization. You know, they had their own pack or whatever. And so they come to him and say, Antiochus, we just have this brilliant idea. We can build gymnasiums, we can do, we can promote Hellenism, and we'll pay for it all. And in fact, if you let us do this, we'll pay you. And he says, You know, I think that's a good idea. How much are you going to pay me for it? They said, How much do you want? And so they just paid him whatever he wanted. He got the job done and got paid for it. That's how amazing this guy is. Okay? It was done on time. It was done without any government budget. And he made money off of it. Right? A lot of, I, one student came up to me and goes, I think the federal government can learn from this guy. <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> we don't want that. But this guy was clever. Clever. He used people to get what he wanted. And then... In the process, they thought he was the hero, even though he was using them. Not only was this man clever, third of all, he was capable. He was capable. Notice verse 24 says this, that his strength, his power was mighty. His power was mighty. Power refers to the totality of all skill sets, physical strength, charisma, character, ability, willpower, determination, brilliance. Both tangible and intangibles, both physical and mental, all the whole package. That's what power refers to. And it says this it was mighty, i.e., it can overcome anybody. He could outsmart anybody. He could outmaneuver everybody. He could outbuy anybody. He could outpower anybody. He was stronger, smarter, faster, better, cunning, brilliant over anyone. That was the way Antiochus was. And in fact, Notice this, and this should send a chill down everybody's spine. It says this, and his power was not his. His power was not his. Whose was it? Satan's. This is a man who is satanically empowered. This is a man who drew his power from the devil. And you say, how, how, how do we know that? Are, are we really sure? Look at the next phrase. Look at the next phrase. It says this, he will destroy, it says probably spectacularly or wondrously or something like that. The idea of destroy is to bring to absolute ruin. This man had the power to not only overcome his enemies, not only to kill them and to cause them to perish, but to bring their memory and everything they had and everything they owned and everything that was associated with them to nothing. And then notice this, he did that wondrously. This word wondrously, have you ever heard of 
the wonderful counselor. Yes, have you ever heard that phrase? Yes? That is referring to Jesus. That is referring to one who is God. Because the word wonderful always refers to that which is so spectacular, it must be supernatural. What these people said is, this guy has so much power, and he can wreak so much devastation, and overcome all the odds, and do such grotesque things in his destroying and devastating might. It's not of this world. That is this guy. He has that kind of capability, far beyond normal human capability. He is satanically empowered. Now, if you think about it, you think, oh, this guy could be so wicked. I mean, he's being controlled by Satan. How would you ever allow this person to succeed? I mean, God must at this point just intervene and say, no way, you're not going to win. Here's the fourth one, conquered, conquered. This is the shock. This is the shock. It says this, he succeeded and did his will. Now, there are many levels of shock about this phrase. One, the first shock is that God actually let him get away with everything. That's the guarantee. You think someone so wicked, someone so powerful, someone so arrogant, someone so wrong, God surely would not allow him to do what he wished. No, he did. And in fact, he didn't just get away with it. You'll notice what the text says. He did his will. Whatever he wanted, what? He did it. That is power. And that is depravity. And that is all under the sovereignty of God. But here's the other shocking thing. This is actually a quote. This phrase right here is actually a quote from Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus. You say, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus didn't do it like that. Amen, he didn't do it like that. It says this. He succeeded and did his father's will. That's what it talks about in Isaiah 53. This, is, this man is so wicked, he truly is the anti-Christ because he's the opposite of Christ. That's how wicked his power is. Isaiah 53, verse 10, if you're wondering. Well, here's the fifth one. He's not only conquering, he's crushing. He's crushing. All that might, all that power, how powerful is it? You can see it in the next phrase. He destroyed the mighty ones. That's what it says. He destroyed the mighty ones. Anyone who could pose a resistance, anyone who could actually have the strength to take him down, he crushed them all. He destroyed them all. And if you have destroyed everyone who could resist you, everyone who had might, then you are the most mighty, yes? You have power par excellence. You have power out of this world. You have power that is the ultimate and final power, at least at this time. And what did Antiochus use it to do? He not only destroyed the mighty ones, he destroyed, what does it say at the end of verse 24? The saints, the holy people, the holy people. This person used all of that power all of that satanic energy, all of that wrath, all of his craziness to attack God's people, Israel. And what he did in burning Bibles, killing children, raping women, beheading people, all kinds of atrocities that we could just list for an hour is illustrative of how wicked this man was. Any kind of evil he could think of to torture the people of God, he did it. And that makes him prototypical of the Antichrist. 
We know that the Antichrist of eschatology, he will do the exact same thing. If you don't take the mark, you can't buy or sell. If you can't buy or sell, you will have no food, so you will what? Die. And if that doesn't kill you, he'll speed it up and behead you. We know that because there will be many, many people killed in the tribulation period. This will be a time that is insane. This is crushing. This is crushing. And he's not just crushing. Here's the sixth one. He's cruel. He's cruel. Notice that it says in verse 25, by his insight, he will cause deceit to succeed. He will cause intrigue or deceit or or deception to prosper. The word deception here is not just that you got tricked. It can be included in that. But there is a level of trickery where you don't like it, but it doesn't hurt too much. Yes, the used car salesman can rip you off. Yes, you were deceived by an advertisement on Amazon. Yes, but you don't, you don't feel hurt. You just feel mad. And really what you feel like is just to return things and get your money back. We all understand that. But the word deceit here has the notion of betrayal in the cruelest sense, where you weren't just tricked, where somebody didn't just pull the wool over your eyes and and cause you to go into a bad deal. They did it on purpose to hurt you. They did it on purpose so that they could laugh at you in the end. They did it on purpose so that they would uncover it. And then when you, were, when you are in your worst moment, and they would, they would realize at that moment that you had betrayed them. That is the notion of deceit. This man, this man engaged in schemes that on purpose he knew would break people's hearts and break their soul. And what kind of individual does that? Well, you can see in the next phrase of verse 25, it says this, that his heart, he magnified his heart. That's the kind of person he was. He was so proud and so arrogant, he just loved to use people. He believed that he was at the pinnacle of greatness. And unlike anybody else who had greatness and wanted greatness and strove for greatness, he did it with all his what? Heart. It totally consumed him so that the only person he could think about was himself, and that meant everybody else was his pawn, and he loved treating them like that. That's what's going on here. And so what did he do? Look at the next phrase of verse 25. It says this, he destroyed many who were at ease. That's what he did to Israel. He lulled them into the sense that he was their friend. He lulled them into the sense that he was doing everything for them. They were even paying him money to do it. And then once they were really at peace and they thought everything was fine and there were no problems whatsoever and everything was stable, peace and safety, peace and safety, he comes in out of nowhere and just starts killing people all over the place. That's what he did. That's what he did. And everybody's wondering, why? Why? I thought you were our... He's like, I'm not a friend to anybody. He just starts executing people. That's him. He is cruel. He is sadistic. He is shocking. He is horrifying. He's a slaughterer, and he does it when everybody is least suspecting, when they think he's their best friend and ally. He's cruel. By the way, by the way, here's, if you just want shock upon shock, that phrase, by his insight, something will prosper, that phrase, that's also found in Isaiah 53. It says this, though. By Christ's insight, righteousness will prosper. That's not this guy. This guy is not about righteousness prospering at all. 
It's about deceit. He truly is a prototype of the anti-Christ because he's everything opposite to Christ. And really, that brings us to the seventh point, which is this. He is anti-Christ. I know. That wasn't exactly starting with a C, but it's close enough. Anti-Christ, okay? (laughs) But he is blasphemous. Look at how verse 25 concludes. He stood, he will stand against the prince of princes. Remember, we said that this man takes his stand. He took his stand greater than anybody before him. Why would he take his stand greater than everybody before him? Because he's crazier, more clever, more capable, more conquering, more crushing, more cruel than any of his predecessors. And he did that all to be against who? The prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah calls Jesus the prince of peace. It's all tied to Isaiah here. And this man deliberately did everything against Christ. He knew about the Messiah. He knew who the Jews adored. He knew who was the true king of the Jews. And he said, whatever I can do to oppose him, I will. It got to this point. got to this point. He makes a temple for Zeus. And he uses the temple of Israel for Zeus. And then to open up the temple, he slaughters a pig on the altar. Just to put it easily enough, that's not kosher. In all the senses of the word, that's not kosher. And that's the Antichrist. That's Antiochus, and we can totally see that he projects the Antichrist. What will the Antichrist do in the future? Paul makes it abundantly clear in 2 Thessalonians 2. He will have the abomination of desolation. He will sit in the temple and exalt himself. Just like Antiochus. One anticipates the other. And you say, okay, so you're saying this guy, this Antiochus person is crazy, clever, capable, conquering, crushing, cruel, antichrist. How is that encouraging at all? It's not. It's bad to worse. And you have to know that. You have to feel it. You have to understand how weighty and oppressive that is. You have to know and grasp the the oppression and opposition that that is so that the final phrase of verse 25, you see it in its full power. But he will be what? Broken. He will be broken. 164 BC, the Jews had won the war against this individual. That's what is celebrated in Hanukkah. And here was this man, this mighty, clever, capable, charismatic, cruel, crushing, conquering, anti-Christ man. He was bedridden on his, in his room, stricken with illness, and he couldn't move, and he couldn't get up. And that is the point. He is broken. He's just a man. He has no real power. He has no real strength. Why were you even afraid of him? He's just a man. And there he is, all the Jews rejoicing that they had the victory, and that man couldn't even move a muscle. Because why? Notice what the text says. He was broken without what? Hands. This was not by any man's machinations. This was not by human strategy. This was not by military conquest. This was strictly, God said, your time is done, and you're done. And you won't move. You thought you were so strong. You thought you were so smart. How smart and strong are you now when you are paralyzed on your bed? How smart and strong are you? 
this is our God. What we have to understand is that we don't fear the foe, you fear God. What we have to understand is that God knows how to deal with evil. And that even in this situation, when there was a threat that might have taken his people, even the righteous remnant, away from him, God broke that down. Do we want to understand how far our God will preserve his own? If any man, as terrible as he might be, even satanically inspired and in power, stands between us and God, God will tear them down. Why? Because his love for us is unbreakable. And his promises to us are irrevocable. And he will not let anyone snatch you from his hand. He will not let anything take you away from himself. He will break it. It will not last. And in the midst of trial, what we must tell ourselves is that one who is opposing us and that one who is against God and that one who grieves us in his blasphemy, and that one who persecutes, he's just a man. And God will break him like he broke everyone else. There will be judgment against him unless he repents. And he will not cause us to lose our faith. He will not take us away from him. If that was even a risk, God will take him down. God will take him down. And it's not just It's not just that he won't win. That is the Antichrist. Evil won't win. God will hold his own. It is this, verse 26. This is what the angel relates to Daniel, the appearance of the evening and morning, which was spoken about. There was 2,300 days prophesied that this time of terror would last. 2,300 days. And here is what God told Daniel. It's true. It's true. How many days do you have in this time period, Daniel, if your people are going to encounter it? You can start marking it on your calendar, 2,300 days. Then it's over. Then it's over. Here's what you have to remember. God will never let you let someone snatch you out of his hand. He'll take them down before it ever comes to that. And even more than that, God will never give you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10, you know that. He will put even a limit on the days in order that that happens. And you say, why did God pick about 2,300 besides the fact that that's the way it happened, which is actually very true. We can mark it on the calendar. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. Now, the time of the tribulation period, the three and a half years where persecution really rises up is about 1260 days. It's about half the time. It's about half the time. And as I said last week, double the trouble, but half the time. Double the intensity, but half the time. What's the message? God knows exactly what his people can handle. God knows exactly when it's too much. And he will never let it get to that. And when we are in trial, and when we are faced with the need for perseverance and endurance, what we must remember is that Our God doesn't just theoretically, he doesn't just figuratively, or as a nice metaphor say, he's going to hold us fast. What does it mean? It means he will go to any length to keep his promise to us. If someone has to die, if he has to take somebody out, he will. If he has to restrain the flow of history to a certain amount of time, it will be done. 
He will always protect his own. He will always preserve his own. This is not just hypothetical. This is not just theoretical. It is historical fact. It is in our time and space. It is history. That's why you don't fear. And even more, that's why you can endure. Sometimes in trials and situations, you just think, hey, just got to get through the week. Got to get through the week. That's, and we know that that's how we sometimes talk about ourselves to, because we understand that trials sometimes only last for a certain duration. Here's what you need to understand. All of our trials only last for a certain duration. They are all numbered. They're all finite. And they are never more than what we can handle. So we need to get to the next day. And we will by the grace of God. That is what God was reminding Daniel at the end. That's the punchline. Things will go from bad to worse, but nothing will ever separate you from God. And nothing, nothing will be given to you that God has not allowed you to handle. That is his promise, and he embedded that even in history from beginning to end. So how do you respond to this? Verse 27, responding. This is the final point. I love this. Verses 26 and 27, here's what God says to Daniel. Seal up the vision. Conceal the vision in some of your translations. If you, if you conceal, sometimes may be a little bit misleading because you think you're hiding it from everybody to see it. That's, that's true. There is an element of concealing because of that nature. But concealing also refers to if you're really hiding something, if you're keeping it close, it's not just away from other people, it's close to you. You're hiding it so that it's well protected. You're hiding it so that it's tucked in to you. <clears throat> what God told Daniel is, you got to hide this truth in your heart. You got to hide this truth in your heart. You got to preserve it for generations to come because there will be many days. We just talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. We know it relates to the Antichrist. There's going to be time between those two individuals, and you need this message from point A to point B. Never forget, never forget, things go from bad to worse. But never forget, God will hold us fast. Not only that, we need to understand the seriousness of it. Notice verse 27, Daniel says, But I, Daniel, so humble, I became weak, and I even became sick for days. The idea here is Daniel completely lost all his strength, and in fact, he almost went near death. He not only lost all his strength, he became near death with illness because he understood how severe this is. Sometimes we don't take how serious it is that things are going to go from bad to worse. We just keep saying it over and over, but we don't really think about it. And then when things do, we're surprised. For Daniel, no surprise. He's already been sick about this for days. It's just like, hey, I already know. This is what's going to happen. We need to take it seriously, but I love this. And don't miss this. This is so important. What did he do afterwards? Then I rose up, and I did the work of the king. All of Daniel's years, maybe 70 years minimum, he served king after king, regime after regime, administration after administration, empire after empire. You know what none of them ever said? Daniel was lazy. You know what never was said about Daniel? He didn't do a good job. Everyone knew they could never find fault with this guy relative to the work of the king. That's why they had to get him on prayer. Daniel 6, yes? You know what this message did for Daniel? It made him faithful. It made him faithful. And he said, he said this, and especially in light of what we're about to see, if 
I know things are bad from worse. I feel that. I see that. But I cannot let that deter my faithfulness to God because I know my God will get me what? Through. He will hold me fast. And that is especially in light of the next phrase. Notice he says this, and I was appalled. The word appalled here is the word desolate. He felt desolate. He just totally felt devastated. And yes, that, that, that just demonstrates his emotional state at the time. True. But don't miss this. The word appalled or the word desolate, have you heard of the abomination of desolation? It's the same word. It's the same word. He felt what his people would go through with Antiochus Epiphanes, and he felt exactly what would happen to his people in the time of the Antichrist. He felt all of that. He had that same feeling of desolation. He was able to empathize them perfectly as if he was living at that time. And why does that matter? Yes, it matters because it demonstrates that he had empathy. Sure, but don't miss this. Even still, he what? Got up and worked. He still was faithful. That's how resilient his God is. And to that very end, don't miss this. People were reading Daniel, and they're they're reading it at the time of Daniel. We see it as history. We already know the Medo-Persians came. We already celebrate Hanukkah. Everyone loves Hanukkah. But, But the people here, they don't know about Hanukkah yet. They haven't seen it yet. How do we know that God is going to get us through How do we know looking forward God is going to get us through? And even now, we might think for generations after us, how do we know God is going to get them through the Antichrist? God used the nearest prophecy to secure them all. What happened? Daniel felt like everyone else felt in the time of Antiochus that was to come and in the time of the Antichrist that will come. And God got Daniel through. And what's the message? If he can get Daniel through then you know he can get his people through Antiochus, and you know he can get his people through the Antichrist, and that means you know he can get you, what, through. He is absolutely sufficient. And yes, there are questions that Daniel had. He had no one to understand the vision, and understanding doesn't mean that he didn't, under, he didn't know what the vision said. Obviously, his reaction demonstrates he knows perfectly well what is in the vision. That's why he's so distressed Like we said before, he didn't have understanding of the implications and ramifications. He had to wait on the Lord. And by the way, just like Daniel 7, he waited, and God answered in Daniel 8. So in Daniel 8, Daniel waited, and God will answer him in Daniel 9. And that's exactly where this text is going. But in the meantime, Daniel says, you want to know what to do in light of this revelation? Things will go from bad to worse. Things will go from bad to worse, but God will hold us fast. And he held me fast, even in my darkest hours, having seen this vision and experienced it, I could still be faithful. You be faithful. Seal this in your heart. Wait on the Lord. That's what we need to do in light of these truths. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this time. You do hold us fast. You do preserve us. And so help us, like Daniel, to do the work of the king, actually the work of the king of kings. Do it well with all our heart, knowing that you hold us fast. The things going from bad to worse are not our excuse to get out of our faithfulness. The reality that you preserve us in it all is your glory and drives us to faithfulness. So may we be faithful with all our heart, waiting on you and knowing you are always sufficient for us and you will never let us go and nothing will ever separate us from you. In your name we pray, amen.